time is it? 724. Is it 724 or 34? 24. All right. I'm just trying to give myself a gauge on how long we've gone. Um, I think we've got the intro. <laughs> leave every the from the from the moment we push record. <laughs> just like two minutes and forty seconds of just like you pages turning and stuff. <laughs> Seven thirty-four. No, I'm sorry. Seven twenty-four. <laughs> Uh, yeah, those stupid buddy podcasts that have all the inside jokes that they force and they try to like, we should make a t-shirt of that. 724. What an right. idiot. No way. You won't do that. <laughs> um, all right. Steve, we are in the same room together right now. It's weird. <laughs> it's, I bet for everyone who's just waiting for you to talk to Siri. Oh, yeah. They're super disappointed right now. Yeah, it'll be the first time in 12 weeks that there hasn't been that little boop, boop. Yeah. In fact, phone lines are lighting up right now. <laughs> Getting a lot of people complaining about that already. Yeah, we got got a lot of callers. Got yeah. a lot of callers. Uh, Joe from Texas, you're on. The, you're on. <laughs> uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, Just wondered why you didn't talk to Siri first. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's... Uh, it feels nice and also strange. Maybe your audio is going to be great this time. Maybe people will like fully understand you. That's been the issue. Has it been bad? Has it been hard? No, to no, no. It's been great. More the content. Yeah, that's what I was going with. It's <laughs> right. pretty much brutal to listen to. Yeah. No, I'm sure this will sound. It's weird. I haven't had these headphones on months. A long time. Long time. Yeah. We uh we are coming to you live from the uh, guest room of my home. Charlotte, we've got uh, we've got wall decals of mountains and smiling clouds, some type of bamboo. <laughs> a lot of podcasts, you know, record in what they call their guest house. Oh, right, right, right. And, you know, just to clarify, this is a guest room. Yeah, of course, my house is fourteen hundred square feet, so. <laughs> but it's a house. It is a house. Yep. Um, no, this is good. This is a. Uh, it feels at least like we're creeping back toward some sense of normalcy, although cases are going up again and all that stuff. But yeah, still being very smart about things. But it's yeah, it feels like people are starting to re-enter the world, and um, with that, of course, will come some sort of repercussions. But I guess we'll have to see. Yeah, <laughs> but we are six feet apart, <laughs> and. We are. We're on separate sides of the room. Um, I'm absolutely, uh, we were able to talk a little bit before um, we started recording, and I'm excited about kind of the angle that you have for what to bring today. And I think that, so it's from a couple of weeks ago, right? The Yeah, because we missed, um, well, using the lectionary text from a couple weeks ago as a launching point. Um, uh yeah, I guess we, we, well, you were out of town. Yeah, uh, we were up in Ohio, and I think we missed we missed one week of uh, of posting something. But um, yeah, it's I think it's I think it's going to be well for me. Even it's already got my brain going, so I'm excited to 
kind of dig into the text and all that kind of stuff and see where it takes us. Yeah. So you just want to get into it. Yep. Okay. Well, the, well, the gospel text from a couple of weeks ago was out of Matthew um, chapter nine, where Jesus sends out the disciples um, and not to, not to really go into that particular text in a lot of detail, but it really became a launching point uh, for me in a way that kind of took a tributary or tangent, but stuck with kind of the the heart of what was happening out of that gospel text. Because I was reading, uh, I was reading Rowan Williams, um, and and his book. He's the best. Yeah, he's he's got a lot of good things to say, and in his book, uh, Introduction to Christian Belief, uh, he tells this story, and so I'm just going to read kind of just this, what, what he says, and, and then we'll let that thought that he sparked kind of lead us into some other things. Sure. But, um, so keep in mind again, though, this was, uh, this was Jesus sending out his disciples, like kind of, how would you say it? Kind of like, um, not a rite of passage, that's not the right way to put it, but basically entrusting into them this embodied message. Man, it's so weird you say that. I was just reading, um, one of Richard Rohr's reflections, and he was talking about sending them out. And he, he, it was, I don't know, he, he put this angle on it that I'd never really considered, where he said, we, we usually read into that, that Jesus entrusts them with this message to take out, and it's for the purpose of the world. And he talks about it as a sort of like initiation rite, that they are going out. He leaves they don't have anything. They have no money, no nothing. So it is a this huge exercise in trust, and they, like, this is their mission. This is like, you know, the this is their big uh, moment of formation or something. I think that's such a, a good way of thinking about it. Yeah, that's, I, I guess I stumbled into that then because yeah. I, I hadn't thought about that, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, not like it's not in the text, but it's it's not the thing that you think about. You think about the ministry of Jesus. You think about like what they're accomplishing, and he's talking about like this is this is trying to form them. This is and so there is a ton of messages there for us then, because we are the people that are sent out. Yeah, it's true. I guess yeah, we skip that a lot in in the that relationship where we see the disciples more being sent out after the ascension of Jesus. So it's like this time together and then right. now you go do your thing, but it is kind of this more um with the security net or whatever of the presence of Jesus being physical with them, he was able to send them out and you know, begin their exercises and trust and that sort of thing. Yeah, huh. No, that's because if they were fishermen and they were all these different things, they had a, a strong sense of security or they had some feeling of like control over their own lives. This was like, you have no money. You have nothing extra on you. You just go where you go. And it, basically he was saying, oh, I wish I knew the exact language. I gave Zeke my phone. Um, something along the lines of it opened up opportunities for good for them. Yeah. That otherwise would not have been there if it was crowded out by security and those things. Huh. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's interesting. Just a tangent. It is. No, but that's that's a good thought. Um but but Roman Williams says this. Um so he tells the story of a young Jewish woman. Um her name was Eddie, I believe Heilsome was I think how you pronounce it. 
but she was in her 20s when uh, the Germans occupied Holland. Um, so between these years of 1941 and 1943, she was not necessarily a, a strong, conventionally religious person, but during those years, they were, became very formative to her as she watched her world descend into a nightmare. Of course, we all know what was happening in that area in 1941 through 43. But it was during that time that she uh, became deeply aware of, of God's hand on her life. And she was imprisoned in the transit camp at Westbrook, Westerbork, sorry, before, uh, so she was in waiting to be shipped to the gas chambers of Auschwitz. And it was during that time that Eddie wrote these words, and this is a powerful quote to me. It's so simple and, and, and obvious, but so powerful, especially based on her circumstances at the time, where she said, there must be someone to live through it all and bear witness to the fact that God lived, even in these times, and why should I not be that witness? And so, and I, then uh, this uh, essay that I read on that um, basically said this, that, that what she was saying is someone, even in the midst of, like, when, when we think of suffering in the world, I mean, that's, that's, you know, when we use phrases like the Michael Jordan of something, I mean, we all have those things. And of right. course, the Holocaust and is just... The ultimate. Yeah, when we talk about suffering, that's that's what we go to. And even in that moment, the question she asked herself is who, or she asked herself was, who will make God credible in the world? In that moment, during that heightened amount of suffering, who will take the responsibility for making God believable? Mm. And that's a, and that's such a, it's a powerful thing because um, basically as the disciples were being sent out, that was the responsibility that they were given, you know, and that's... The They're carrying God with them. Yeah. In, in a very real sense. Right. And will you do that in a credible way? Mm -hmm. I, that way of saying it to me is just so much... It, it, has, it, it's a, it has a tremendous impact because, you know, not to just go to the cheap, easy stereotype, but like... The you know when Jesus says go out and these disciples are being sent out, they're not on the street corner with the megaphone. That's not making right. God credible. Yeah, that's, right. That's bearing witness to something, or that's be, that's vocalizing something. Yeah. But the powerful thought is, who will make God credible in mm. these moments? Who will you know? Who will bear witness that God is present even in moments like this? That's yeah. That is a real, true kind of witnessing, or whatever. That that kind of holding, um, I don't know, holding all things together, all of the all of what's happening, and carrying yourself in the midst of it, not denying it, uh, not speaking outside or around it, but directly in the midst of it, and realizing like that person is is uh, I don't know, found credible by the way that they're walking or something. Yeah, it's. And, you know, and it's one of those questions that some questions you you can jump too quickly to the answer. Um, so, like, if we would say, uh, how do you make God credible in these moments? Because, you know, it, it's not Auschwitz or whatever, but, but we're living in a moment right now. For Th sure. There are just, um, there are just things happening, whether it's, you know, race 
uh, tension and, and, or, you know, the pandemic, all of those, these obvious things that I don't have to say, we're in this moment right now. It's a unique moment in our, in our history. No question. It is. And so the question of who will make God credible or who will make God believable or who will testify to God's presence, even in moments like this, it's not a question that I think is not even just even in these moments, but uniquely in because of these moments, like right. in the midst of this now. Right. And, you know, and I don't, you know, so the, the answer to that, I think, is not to just simply jump to the five ways in which you can do that. But some questions are meant to be as defining as the answers. Does that make sense? Like It does. When I, ever since I've read that, it's just that phrase. I can't give you the list of how I personally will embody that. But what I can tell you is that question has been more than defining to the way in which I have engaged the last several weeks that I've encountered it. Yeah, re- wrestling within that question, uh, if there's a good enough question that you're trying to like find some sort of an answer to or you're trying to make your way through, if the question is good enough, it it leads to faithful results. It leads you into things that answer it that you may not have been able to answer just by theoretically saying what you thought about the question or something. Right. And and so big questions like that, we also like we slowly answer them. So I don't know if this makes sense, but it's like we are never not answering them. Right. But we're also never fully answering them. Exactly. So like, you know, here's a stupid example. Like if I ask you, you know, what hey, what do you think of puppies? You know, can't stand them. <laughs> and you're like, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where I stand on puppies yet. But as you're saying it, you're kicking a puppy. I'm like, you're answering it, man. Like you, you're basically embodying the answer. Right. And you're also figuring it out. Those two things can be happening simultaneously. Yep. And so questions like this, it's like it is defining as you're thinking through it. But man, like get that in your soul. Who is an Who's making God credible in these moments, and how is it that we do that? I mean, yeah, whatever you're doing with your life is answering that question for sure. And I think I read something today where a lady said, uh, "Oh, this one was a couple of weeks ago." I said it. Somebody posted, uh, "Nobody, nobody loves uh, starting starting reading groups." Uh, about huge problems more than liberal white people or whatever. Like right. in response to huge horrifying issues. Let's all sit sit together in a circle. And then I read something today, and the lady was like, "Let's say you drive into a neighborhood, and uh, like five or six of the houses are on fire, and like your your response to that is like, let's let's circle up and like decide what we think about fire." Like, <laughs> like, let's talk about the nature of fire. Let's talk about like, what is homeowners? Like, well, all of that stuff. And it's like, no, there are people that are there that are fighting that fire and you just need to join in the work of that or whatever. So anyway, I just like, I like the idea of, uh, of like just living into those kinds of questions or whatever, instead of trying to figure out questions. And then, cause, and I think Roar's piece said that today too. You don't, you don't think your way into being you, you know, you sort of act your way into, uh, into being or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, like, like I said, and we're never, we're never, we're never not slowly working out what those, 
mean. But even when, even in any of those moments, we're never without certain responsibility. Like, it's not like I'm not to make God credible until I figure out what it means to make God right. credible. Like, at every moment that I'm engaged with, it's part of what I'm supposed to be doing. I, I just handed you uh, Peterson's book a few minutes ago. Eugene Peterson's son wrote this book, and uh, it's, I shouldn't say he wrote it, it's it's a exact transcript of letters that Eugene wrote to him, and it's about pastoral ministry, and they kind of exchanged letters over the course of 10 years. And uh, in one of them, he writes to his son, Eric, and he says, uh, he says, like, I people, I, he, he was going back to the church that he planted in Maryland, and, and it was going to be like, after he had already retired, it was going to be some kind of a celebratory thing for his ministry. They were going to be recognizing him, and he said, I'm going to go there, I'm going to be on stage, and I'm going to be lauded, and I'm going to be praised, and people are going to to tell me how great of a time it was, what it has meant, and all of that. And what none of them will know is how utterly uh, useless I felt, how much of a failure I felt like, how I did not ever know what I was doing, how there were long periods where I felt like it was nothing was happening or whatever. And so basically he was saying the goal is not to figure those things out. The goal is to live faithfully now. And as you are living, it works itself out. Basically you, you come into knowing what God was doing in retrospect or something. Yeah. And, and I bet, I bet in the moment, those who, live most faithfully and those who bring the most amount of credibility to God aren't always recognized, you know, cause there's oh, a lot man. of, a lot of chaos going around a lot of quote unquote wise people being very, very loud in many different ways around the things that are going on. But it's like, you just pray that that steady undercurrent of, of, of wisdom giving true testimony to the presence of God in these moments are the things that will, will be the, be what lasts and will be because what lasts what on the other side of things will be then what the other side will be built upon for sure and so the prayer of course is that that true credibility given to god is what the other side will be built on mm-hmm. so when i so when i thought about when i read that what rowan williams um talked about it made me think uh it took me back to the old testament story of uh the prophet elisha and Nahum. um and it'll be clear, more clear as we go through it as to why. Everybody's it, like, well, well oh, yeah, duh, 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 <laughs> yeah, for sure. Captain Obvious. <laughs> um, but that story, if, if we remember, um, so the Syrian army had uh, basically attacked Israel. They were constantly under threat by these neighboring nations. And so this powerful Syrian nation into, attacked uh you know the the Israelites, and and um, part of the results of that was that they took people away, prisoners of war, and and turned uh, brought exiles with them into their own nation. And one of the most powerful Syrian generals, uh, leaders of their army, was a man named uh, Nahum, um, and he came down with a case of leprosy, um, which was 
what, probably pretty much a death sentence. Yeah, it's not good. No, not at all. And so he, his king, the king of Syria, was powerless to help him. Um, and so he decided to go outside of, of that and search for help in, in other places. And so he went to talk to the king of Israel because he was going to, uh, he eventually wanted to make his way to the prophet Elisha because he caught wind of healing power being found in this prophet. And so he humbled himself enough to go to this nation that they just destroyed, that he took a major role in. He played a major role in the capturing, uh, or the capturing of certain uh, Israelites. Um, and he went to this prophet, Elisha, showed up at his door and said, basically, you are a prophet. Can you heal me of leprosy? Elisha refuses to even come to the door. He just sends his servant out there and says, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. This infuriates Nahum <laughs> for many reasons. One, you didn't even give me the respect to come talk to me. And yeah, then, how many people have told him, I'm not, no, I'm not feeling it right now. You, yeah. You can... Go run along. Yeah, let's remember who this is, yeah. you know, of course, and what he, like you said, what he's used, how he's used to be uh, being treated. But um, he gets talked into listening and he goes and dips himself in the river seven times and he's healed and he's cleansed. Um, and he offers Elisha all these gifts and everything and Elisha refuses them and, and he goes back and he's healed. So there's a, obviously a lot more to that story, but talking about that in a very condensed way to get to this point of how did Elisha, or I'm sorry, how did Nahum even know about the, the life-giving power that was found in Elisha? Mm -hmm. Well, the story introduces uh, another character because this is a story full of, of powerful kings, powerful generals, uh, leaders of armies, and, and even Elisha was a very powerful prophet during that time. This story is full of those types of people. But... The only way that Naaman was able to eventually discover this source of healing was that there was a young girl in his household who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. Now, this was a young girl who was a prisoner of war. She was, in, is, um, she was captured by the Syrian army and, and out of Israel and taken to live within this general's house. And she is the one that gave testimony to where this healing source is. And, she, you know, she was the one that enacted or, or, or got the ball rolling by using her voice. She gave testimony. She gave witness. She spoke to this God who is credible mm -hmm. when it comes to this type of healing in a moment to her captor. To her captor. Yeah. And so, like, a couple of questions pop up in my head when I read that, especially as it pertains to, like, as we are thinking through what would it mean for us to be credible witnesses to the healing presence of God in moments like these. So, so think about it like this. I, I don't know how to... How do you even ask this question? I'm not going to, but how do you ask this question emphatic enough without swearing? Because like, <laughs> why would she tell him? Like, speed up death for that guy. If it's if it's any of us, it's like I'm I'm gonna whatever speeds up leprosy. I'm gonna do that. Yeah, secretly. 
like a major player in the capturing of your nation and bringing you personally as a prisoner of war out of your country. You are now an exile out of your place. You're brought into become a servant. And, you know, I'm not sure what all that means, but I'm sure that... Not great. No. There's a, no way it's great. No. A maid is probably sugarcoating it. Concubine. You know? yeah. yeah. And so why would you then give witness to where this person could find healing. Mm. And so I, there's a lot to that thought, but it's like one of the things that it made me think about was what's our end game? Like what are, what are we trying to do? One thing that makes God credible is to not just win the short-term battles. Making God credible and speaking to um, God's presence in even moments like the one that she faced was to believe in ultimately the healing of Naaman was better than his destruction. Yeah. His destruction might have led to their more, uh, to experiencing a quicker release, of, release right. or victory. But she, to testify to the healing power of God means to play the long game. To Lo- loving enemies and that sort of thing. Yeah. I, I, uh, I posted this yesterday on Facebook and Twitter, uh, Dorothy Day, and I, I wish I had my phone because I'd read the exact quote, but Dorothy Day says that uh, that we we love God as much as we love, or uh, hold on, dang it, oh, I want to say it right. Is it just we love God? <laughs> it's just we love God. <laughs> it was, uh, it was we, we love God as uh, as much as we love the person that we hate most or something along those lines. So basically like whatever, whatever love we have for the, the person that we have the most hate and animus towards is really our love for God. The one that sometimes even you logically have the right oh, yeah. to disdain. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody commented on it and said, I, I have very little problem hating or I have very little problem uh, loving the least of these. He's like, my problem that I have right now is loving the most of these, basically. Like, yeah, that's that's the, the the person who is your enemy. Your ability to love them is your ability to love God, basically, is what Dorothy Des, Day is saying. And uh, I hate I hate it. I hate that quote. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and what's funny is it got the, the responses that I got both privately and publicly were from every side of the political spectrum because enemy and uh, friend and enemy are categories that every person has regardless of what side you're on you know sure yeah and and unfortunately a lot of the you know current current political scene it, it is it's all about the short-term victories it's right securing your own power for the the current moments you know and like this this young girl that we don't even get her name you know, she, she was able to, she was able to do two things. One, she, even despite these circumstances that she went through, the suffering did not erase her memory of a God who offers light and healing. Right. You know, how many of us lose that ability? Like, you know, of course we, you know, we testify to God during specific times of, of pleasure and joy and and abundance and all of these things. But it's like the trickier part is, do you lose that 
memory during the times of suffering because you cannot testify to that you have forgotten. Yes. And so her so her memory she she didn't allow for suffering to extinguish the memory that she had and she didn't allow for her current circumstances to eliminate the truth that she was completely without power to speak light into darkness. You know, she was in captivity, you know, she was oppressed, all of these things, but 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 even in that moment, her her the, if if you had this pie chart of, you know, um freedom or or everything, her slice would have been as small as you could possibly cut. But even within that slice, she chose to use that as a way to give voice to what she ultimately thought the world needed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the Bible says that we overcome evil by good, you know, and so, and Dr. King always talked about it, and you know, about love driving out hate and that sort of thing, and if you just want retribution or if you just define justice as more evil into the world, it, uh, you know, it, it might be a short-term win, but won't, it won't change the world long term, and uh, I, I think that, I think that a lot of people use that kind of a, uh, that kind of a thought as like a cop out, and as a, uh, as a way of really getting around real issues. And I think that you and I probably are more uh, extreme in our views than probably anyone even knows. So it's not it's not getting around anything. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's more subversive. It's more powerful. It, it it's just harder. It, it's not as easy of a snap judgment instantly or something. Not even a snap judgment. Uh, the path to get to like true healing, true love, true justice in the world is always going to be longer than shorter. You know. Yeah, and and the spirit behind the way in which you give voice toward that is so important. Like this quiet whisper of a young, powerless prisoner of war, female, but it had the spirit of God mm-hmm. behind it. And so look at the power that it held and, and what it led to. Um, and Jesus turned over tables too. So it's of not, course, it, it, th- of there are definitely both things, but I, I think that making space for that and not making, uh, not making the claim that it all has to be a homogenous thing that that the the path to getting to justice and getting to peace or whatever has to always look the same and so there's there's one more element or another element to the story that is is interesting that uh I'm sure many people have but Brueggemann pointed out that that I saw is um so basically you know after uh, Naaman was healed you know he is not just a healed person like because we in the story were were given some clues it's very subtle but that he now carries with that healing a responsibility because get this so um when it talks about him being healed it says his his flesh was restored and and the way that it says it is you know he was clean and that he had the flesh of a young boy um now, the word used for that 
is the same word, the same phrase when it says that he, you know, when he uses the phrase young boy, it's the masculine version of the same way in which the girl was described earlier when it says that she was a young girl who was a prisoner of war. And so basically what the text is saying, or at least alluding to, is that in his healing, he became like her. And so what's interesting about, one of the things interesting about that to me that I, I, I thought of was he now carries that responsibility. He, so this girl had experienced this life-producing God. She remembered it, and in these moments of suffering, through remembering, she was able to articulate and give voice to this possibility of, of him experiencing that same God. Mm-hmm. And so now, in experiencing that, he now bears the burden a wonderful burden, but the burden of testifying to that same experience, to that same God. So he now has the responsibility of the question, who will make God credible in moments like these? Yes, he's been a recipient of the saving work of God. And so because of that, he has to live in light of that fact or whatever. And everyone knows that the general with leprosy no longer has it. Well, and I wonder... Um, and of course, this isn't part of the story, but uh, what I would wonder is, let's say he encounters an enemy in a future battle with leprosy. Will he give testimony huh. to Elisha, or will he just allow for this enemy huh. to be defeated? Um, and that's kind of the question that a lot of us need to be walking around with. And it's it's a, like you alluded to earlier, it's a very hard question, and if anybody you know, even to say it that strongly, if anybody doesn't think that they would hesitate in name and shoes or, or whatever oh, right. to to point the the one that if they would be defeated would make your life more immediately better. Uh-huh. You know, um, if we don't think that we wouldn't think long and hard about withholding that for sure, we don't know ourselves well enough. Oh, yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think it gets to the question too of like, is do we want a justice uh, or kingdom or new world or whatever, however you want to say it, do we want one that is uh, inclusive of even our enemies? Like, do we, do we want to be right or do we want justice? Do we, you know what I'm saying? That's a great point because does this young girl want a defeated Syria Syrian army or does she want a healed Syrian army? Oh man. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and that, that could not be more uh, timely right now because mm-hmm. there's nothing easier and more initially satisfying than dunking on somebody online that's wrong. There, and, and it's so easy to do, and I understand why people do it, especially people that have been harmed by people. And I, you know, I, I'm not giving any kind of lecture to people who uh, are marginalized on how they should should you know act or react in the world i'm speaking specifically for me and people that are like me like i want healing in the world i don't i don't want uh i don't want to be seen and viewed as the one who held had the right answers and was on the right side of things if i'm not constantly trying to bring people into that because if we really do feel like we have something that's good and true and just it's unfaithful to not want more people to join in on that. And so, you know, I think about like uh, Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama writing uh, that book together. 
and Desmond Tutu was, uh, they were sort of laughing and joking with each other about uh, some caricatures of each other's faith, uh, both of their faiths or whatever. And uh, the Dalai Lama said something along the lines of like, well, according to your people, I'm going to be in hell. And uh, and so that got them to, to like joke about that back and forth. And that, it's a transcript of it in the book. I read this in Target one day because it's free. <laughs> the book was free. To, well, it's not free, but I read a lot of it for free. Um, but basically the Dalai Lama says uh, they get, they like actually start to speak seriously about it. And uh, he said, if I ever, uh, or I think the question was posed to him, would you rather go to heaven or hell? Or what, what would happen if, if, if you went to either one? I can't remember the exact wording, but he said, if I had, if I had it to choose between heaven or hell, I would rather be in hell because there's more work for me to do there. There's better work for me to do there, yeah. which I think is the most Christian kind of response to that, you know, that kind of a question being posed to you. It's like, what place needs you more? Yeah. And what does the heart, heart of God want? Of course. In those moments. Yeah. I, I, I know I've alluded to this a lot in the past or whatever, but you know, the one of the rabbinic midrashes on the Exodus story has on the other side of the Red Sea crossing, the Israelites celebrating um, their newly found freedom, singing and dancing. And uh, Moses happened to notice that God was crying as opposed to joining in with them. And God, and Moses asked, you know, why, why are you crying? Where this is a moment of celebration. We won. We're free. And God said, "You don't understand. I just lost a tremendous amount of Egyptian children." Huh. You know, and it's like, and of course, that's not in the scripture, but it's a way in which a lot of the ancient rabbis re- were able to read that sort of thing. The ones that had a deep understanding of this heart of God that doesn't want to defeat but heal. And I mean, and if God is like Jesus, that's that is the truest <laughs> picture of what God would be doing. Well, absolutely. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. There's and you know not to take it from that macro level to such a what would maybe seem as an insignificant level, but to your point, even just about the way in which we engage online, like what would you say 90 percent is about winning that that thread? Oh, a hundred percent. You know, and it's just and and again, I. Some of the, I'm not saying that's not necessary. There needs to be disruption and conflict in order for there to be change and growth. So don't mishear that. But what I'm also saying is like this young prisoner of war, of, of war, this young girl, who will be those voices in the midst of this? Like who will be the ones, like when we retell this ancient story, she is the one that we're reading about. Uh-huh. I'm sure within that moment, there was a lot, if, if social media were a thing, there would be a lot of fiery darts being thrown at each other verbally about, you know, the, the, the evil scene or name. What did you hear? What name and did all these sorts of things, but who in these moments will show themselves in the long run to be the young girl to introduce even the one who for us would be better off defeated directing them toward this source of life and this source of healing. Yeah, this is, I mean, it's, this is a text and this is a kind of message that 
I don't have any desire to live into. I mean, there's nothing in me that wants uh, to treat people with kindness or tenderness that I feel like are bringing about harm in the world and their, their views and their actions are, are harmful. But I do think that, I do think that the, you know, I do think that the Lord is saying it to us and to a lot of us is, you know, do, do you want what's good in the world or do you want to be right? You know? Yeah. And, you know, and not to be repetitive, but, um, like you said, it does look different in different times. Uh, like you alluded to Jesus um, overturning the money tables. And I just the other day I heard someone talking about that. And, and I believe, um, doesn't the story say that he made whips, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that wasn't just a, a, a reaction. Oh, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. It, he took the time to, like, <laughs> he sat with that uh-huh. and made them. So it was an intentional, intentional act like that was thought through, you know? Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And, and so there are, there are times to be loud in a wise way. Yes. I, um, well, I mean, if you listen to, uh, if you listen to Dave Chappelle's new, did you listen to it? The new little special he put out on Netflix or no, no, no. I think it was just on YouTube. I don't know. Yeah. It's on something, mm-hmm. you know, he said it there. Uh, one of the things that stuck out to me is he said the streets speak for themselves, mm-hmm. you know, and so that that kind of thing is happening, you know, like monuments coming down and streets are crying out, so to speak. Um, and I do think that there is obviously place for that, but what is what is our specific call in the midst of it? And it, it is different for everybody, but I do think that there has to be because Jesus didn't stay in that mode forever. That was not the only way that he, you know, embodied his message. I think that uh, we've got to find a path that includes tenderness, inclu- inclusivity, all of those things that are markers of his whole ministry and message and such. Yeah, and I guess if we want to remember that story honestly, um, he it was a critique of his own tribe. Yeah, right. You know. And, yeah. and it was the, the Romans that he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Uh-huh. Yeah, there, there's there's nobody that I feel more more contempt and such for than religious people that I think are just missing it. And not not a, uh, not ones that are just happen to be missing it, but that are extremely self-congratulatory and uh, trying to, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's interesting that we're bringing all this stuff up today. I think it's timely. I think that there's somebody that needs to hear it, but the, the lectionary text for this week in Matthew, I think it's in Matthew chapter 10 towards the end. Um, let's see. Yeah. This is red letters. This is Jesus. He says, starting at 34, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. If you love your father or mother more than me, more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you'll find it. 
anyone who receives you, anyway, uh, that I read that to Chelsea earlier, um, out loud because, uh, well, and she just, she was like, who said that? I was like, it's, it's Jesus. Uh, it's, that's, you know, that's harsh not to get, not to go way too far down that rabbit trail, but like not, there's not just one single answer for any of this. It's both reconciliation and tenderness and inclusivity and all of that. And also, you know, there is the harsh message of Jesus as well, that like it will set you against certain people and it may be irreconcilable. But is the message, will you make space for even your captor or something? Right. And, and that's, that um, speaks to the importance of the motivating spirit, I think, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, because, of course, that passage, you know, I mean, we don't have time to talk through all of that, but there is a harsh tone to it. And like, right. you know, with, with again, with the temple and the money chain, there's, there are these harsher moments that, um, you know, on, at least on the surface, seem to be in opposition of, of stories like in that we just talked about, about, you know, loving enemies and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and, and it, you're right though. It, it does, it, depending on where we are, we hear, we need different messages sometimes, mm-hmm. but, but those messages are part of this same motivating spirit. Uh, you know, it's not like, it's not like the harsher passages, the, the motivation is defeat instead of healing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still out of this, this heart of God to bring restoration and healing to all things. But, um, you know, there are moments probably when Zeke needs a little bit more tenderness from you. And there are moments when Zeke needs a little bit of the opposite of tenderness. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. and that's part of the beauty of, of these stories and these texts in my opinion, is that it, it we're never without finding what is needed in these moments for us as individuals as well. Not, not just as individuals, corporately, communally, of course, but... Um, there's a great deal of paradox in all of this, and there are, there's truth found in, you know, things that seem like they're opposing at different times. And um, I think it's, yeah, we'll... Cause I'm such a pragmatist. And so if, if something objectively doesn't feel like it's serving the greater good, the purpose of, uh, of, uh, the thing that we're all going after, then it's easy to cast it aside. And I think that nothing about kingdom, nothing about being people of God is about, you know, that which is pragmatic. I think it's, it's, you're called to do something, that's totally other. It's to, like totally a separate third way kind of thing that defies logic at times. And loving enemies, praying for those that despitefully use you, you know, uh, Jesus being found in the least of these and the imprisoned and coming to bring good news to the poor and that the meek will inherit the earth. I mean, the whole thing's completely upside down or whatever. Do we feel like we're at a good stopping point? Good enough. Yeah, and if you re-listen to that, I'm that this that last section might not even be necessary. Like if it's shorter, that's fine. But yeah, I, yeah, just so we don't. Because the only reason I say it is because I do think that 
Well, no, it's 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 important to present the little bit of opposition, but we did talk about it with the temple yeah. scene because I I don't want. I'll see what fits. Yeah, because not that it. I I don't want the the central point of it to be lost in the trying to over. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I I and I do think, and we can keep this part or whatever. I think that stories like that are really important, and you know whether it's, uh, how do you pronounce? Is it Ellie? Wiesel or something? Is that how you pronounce his name? <laughs> am I am I way off or you don't know either? Okay. I just have only seen it written. I don't, it's a, it's how I say it that it might be <laughs> wrong. So, yeah. Like, somebody's like, idiot. Yeah. Uh, you know, throughout history, people that have been faced with the greatest amount of brutality and, like, have also displayed profound love toward even their captors and uh and that's the that is the work of god only if if you can find com- compassion even in the midst of horror and uh and want good i mean jesus on the cross forgive them father they don't know what they're doing um if uh if you can get to that place that's the like fully or not fully but that's the transcendent kind of god breaking in kind of thing yeah cuz there's something just like the, you know, the, the young girl in this story, there was something so deeply rooted in her that it couldn't be taken away. Yeah. And that impulse, I mean, that's, that is, that is your mission. That's your vocation. Make Mm -hmm. God credible in the world, even in this, even in this. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. And that's, that's not a, not in spite of this, but uniquely in this. Right. Yeah. Because God, God, desperately wants to be uniquely present in these types of moments. And, and it's it's not that God needs a PR team. It's not about like marching for a prayer to get brought back in schools or the 10 commandments. It's not like God needs us to stick up for him. It's that it's that God needs to be made manifest in the world through us. You know, the Teresa of Avila, God has no hands on earth but ours, no feet on earth but ours. Uh if if we don't embody God in the world, like God's spirit, God's essence. How how else would God be made known? I mean, the, the earth can certainly cry out, but uh, there are certain circumstances that only only we can embody what it means to to be the people of God or to be God's presence. You know, it's so easy for me to sit here and applaud. You know, the the Jewish woman that Rowan Williams talked about. You know, Eddie uh, Hill Heilsummer however you say her name, you know, because it's like, look at that boldness, look at that right. courage, like from sitting on this stool uh-huh. in your, your, your guest room. But it's like, you know, think about if, if people like her didn't exist in moments like that, you know, like darkness overcomes and it overwhelms. And it's like, who who will hold the even the small flicker of light? But yes. like light has to remain present even in moments like that. And it's like, you know, it's what God desperately is is calling for us to yeah to do. And that's the, those are the people that we remember in history, the people that carried the light into profound darkness. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not to say anything about you know uh, those who we don't remember or whatever, but the, that's the those are the people that we're we're told of or whatever. Yeah, and you know, and if 
when when people talk of, you know, I don't like the whole does God ex- exist type, you know, conversations all the time. But it's like when those types of conversations go on, one of the number one things is like, well, you know, what about all the suffering? And right. and of course, that is such a a a um, an obvious credible thing to bring up sure. in that type of discussion. But it's like it's like in the moments of suffering it's a it's even harder to bear witness to making god credible or making god believable sure. in, you know in those types of of moments um but it's it's the it's the task that we're 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 called to um you know and some of us might not have to do that in places that are as dark as auschwitz uh-huh. but you know and not to compare levels, you know, of suffering, but we all have dark moments that we are called to bring the credibility of, of the light into. And collectively, this has been a dark moment. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I posted a couple of years ago, and it's not novel. I mean, I think I've seen a lot of other people saying it, but, like, if, you've wanted, if you ever wanted to know what you would have done during the civil rights movement, it's like, well... Here's your chance. You know, this is, this is, will be remembered in history. So however you're living now is how you'll remember, how you'll tell your grandkids what, you know, what you did during this time or whatever. Yeah. Well, let's pray. Yeah. You want to do it, Steve? Sure. God, we seek to pray honest prayers in moments like these. God, in, in, in doing so, open up ourselves to an honest evaluation of are we making God credible? Are we making you credible? Are we, are we bearing witness to a source of healing and light and life, even in moments like these, God? Lord, may the strength and the spirit and the love that led to this young girl, this young prisoner of war in the Elisha story, bring this message of peace to the one who is her captor. God, may that same presence and that same spirit motivate us, God, in whatever circumstances that we find ourselves engaged in. God, May we not look to defeat the Syrian army, but may we look to heal them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.